These are the people who traded in their chips and changed their minds, all in the name of fresh air. And we're letting these folks interview each other. Each week, student becomes teacher, interviewee becomes interviewer. I'm Nick Mott, host of the show, and this is Take It From Me, the podcast from REI, your source for outdoor gear, classes, and experiences. It seems like every spring I get these grand ideas that my thumb will get a little bit greener. I'm going to get some seeds, I think. I'm going to get some soil. I'll get my hands dirty. I'll grow my own veggies. I'll spend every day outside in the yard. But then I get busy or maybe just lazy. So, like every year, the plant beds in my backyard are still empty right now. But they wouldn't be if I spent more time with folks like Phil Taylor. He's a former academic and a self-described mad farmer. Last episode, you heard from writer and filmmaker Brendan Leonard. We'd joke in the parking lot and be like, I got this program called Five Hour Abs. You just run for five hours, and when you get back, you have abs. (laughs) Now, Brendan's at Black Cat Farms to interview Phil. There are tractors strewn about, lying on the ground like old lazy dogs. There are pigs trotting around and doing their pig thing, which is mostly eating. You can hear them opening and shutting the cover to their troughs throughout most of the episode. Phil does work here through his organization, Mad Agriculture. Through Mad Ag, he helps unite local farmers and promotes innovative and sustainable techniques in agriculture, like bug farming. One of the experiments we've been working on is how do we create an insect-based animal feed. It might sound crazy. I mean, animals eat insects all the time on the range. You think of trout in the river, you think of chickens on the range. But currently, it's illegal to feed them insects and feed. So... We've been working for the last two years to develop an insect-based animal feed that would replace those more unsustainable ingredients with something that's more natural, better tuned to their biology, you know, like what chicken doesn't like scratching and eating insects. While they walked around the farm, Phil and Brendan talked about how to live and farm sustainably and the sorts of things that folks who enjoy being outside on adventures and folks who like working on the land might find in common. Can you describe kind of what your how you make a living you teach you also you work here you're you're bug farming as well you know we're all on a wild journey and we go through various iterations and failures and personal moments of inspiration and epiphanies and and so i i went into academia i spent a lot of time in academia in an effort to become a critical thinker someone that could basically serve the world and what i found in academia was a limitation to root my work in practical knowledge and application you know, I was publishing papers, putting them out in the ether, and um, really lacking that kind of hands in the soil, pounding the pavement, getting to know what farmers' needs are. Publishing papers all about their needs and how to solve them, but not ever talking to them. It was a big problem, fundamental disconnect. And so over the past four or five years, I've really come out of academia and dedicated all my time to mad agriculture, constantly asking, what ought we do, right? I mean, like, wake up in the morning, what ought I be doing, <laughs> you know? on a very, very fundamental level. What was your answer to that question this morning? Yeah, yeah. Well, I woke up not asking that question, but it was sort of implicit. I mean, I, I my goal right now is to showcase farmers that are beacons of change. And so I'm working with two, two awesome ladies that have done some film work, and we're thinking about putting together a series called the Mad Farmer Series. And we don't know how it's going to take shape, but what we're going to do is we want to showcase these beacons of change that are out there working hard and tirelessly to build the new new agricultural economy. And so that's how I woke up 
thinking. I thought I was waking up thinking, okay, these farmers need to be highlighted and showcased and their stories need to be told because change radiates out from the place that it works. You didn't grow up uh, driving a Ford F-150 and uh, wearing wearing boots. and. Uh... Funny enough, you say that I did. did? Yeah, we okay. still have a 1982 year I was born, 1982, blue and white Ford F-150 on the old family farm. I grew up in Maryland on the eastern shore. It's uh, cotton, tobacco, soybeans, alfalfa, corn. You know, so this is sort of a return for you in a way. It's a return. Yeah. It's just like the fertility cycle, you know, live and die and resurrect anew. I mean, that's kind of what we do as humans and it's how soil remains healthy. So I grew up in Iowa, which I believe 70 or 72 percent of the ground in the state is covered by corn and soybeans, which is kind of a it's kind of an industrial farming place. Can you or where is that on the spectrum compared to what we're doing here, what you're doing here? It's on the other end. Yeah, this is this is one end of the spectrum, that's the other. This type of farming is quite a bit different because it's highly diversified and it's doing its best to mimic nature. You know, it looks at an ecosystem and says, hey, you've been around for millions of years. You do, you developed in a certain way. Let's try to mimic that, you know, through diversity and through perennials, through livestock, through a variety of ecological interactions, whereas a monoculture does quite the opposite. It simplifies the system. And with that simplification come a lot of unintentional harms to the environment. Why is it that we've gotten away from this and have gone to, to that instead? Oh, that's a great question. It's a combination of factors. One of the biggest has been the industrialization and corporate control of, of agriculture, where everything is driven by the economic bottom line. And so we shove things like social good and ecological good um, to the side in an effort to make more money. And when, when that happens, we lose connection to the land and we lose connection to the communities that support the kind of food system that I, I would like to see in the future. The, the, the hope in all this is that there's a younger generation who's sensing a dramatic need to, to be in touch with nature and the land. For me, you know, the same way that the natural outdoor industry has exploded, I think because it's a cultural consciousness of like, I want to be out in nature, it feeds me, it's where I feel well and wild. That same impulse I think is evolving into a back to the farm, back to the land movement that's uh, really everywhere. Are uh, our food choices kind of driving that as well? Is there like a kind of, we're kind of getting away from, we don't want to eat like cocoa puffs and high fructose corn syrup. Uh, is that sort of driving this? That is the most important driver. Yeah, the Wendell Berry, my spiritual guru, Kentucky farmer and poet, once said, you know, how we eat determines how the world is used. And that is so true. I'm a tropical rainforest biologist by training, actually. And I spent a lot of time learning that when you eat a Pringle, you're supporting palm oil destruction in Indonesia because that's how vast and complicated the supply chain is. And so how we eat has these ramifications that reciprocate across the globe in ways we don't understand. And I think those conscious food choices are really critical for grounding our, our own vote, our own passion, our own value system in, in the kind of world that we want to build. I think, you know, how we heal our agricultural system is in part looking back and it's, it's in part looking forward. It's that tension that I think is uh, ubiquitous in, in, in any movement. What's the connection between people who are in, into the outdoors and adventure and, and food and farming? You know, most people that are into uh, outdoor adventuring are at the core seeking a connection to nature and that wildness and and often think of that as their most important nature experience. And for me, eating is the most important nature experience because you're actually eating nature. It's, it's, the, 
it is the fundamental unit of, of existence. You know, food is the very foundation of who we are. Yeah, there's not a lot of, lot to eat in a lot of the places I go to have fun. You know, like it's yeah. just, not a lot of things grow up in the mountains yeah, and the desert. A <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. even there. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. It's no, tough. It's, it's tough. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So you spend all this time learning how to survive, like on big walls and ice climbing and stuff. And you're like, you know what? If it came down to it, I'd still be screwed. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Feast on shop blocks. Yeah. What did you uh, What did you eat for dinner last night, Phil? Ah, uh, what did I eat for dinner? My wife made some pumpkin soup. That's what I ate with some bread from. Uh, where was it? I don't know. Some good bread. All locally. All locally sourced, yeah. I mean, we do our best, and we try to eat with the seasons. You know, for me, it's kind of like drinking beer in the winter. I'm not going to go to a, a Kolsch or a lager. You know, I go to stouts and porters. You know, I think your body kind of calls for that heaviness, you know, and that, you know, it's the same with food. Like, I think if you listen to your body, you know, it's calling for roots and squash. You know, that's what that's what you hunger for. Listening to your body in that way is is important, and thankfully, there's thousands of tons of squash being grown right now and harvested and uh, it's easy to find is there uh so i my girlfriend and i both have been vegetarian for over a decade and um eat organic we don't have a family to feed so we're like everything we buy is at natural grocers you know organic stuff And, and one day i was like you know i actually just read this study it doesn't really make that much of a difference in your health you know and she she said well i've always just done it because i don't want the people you know who are growing this stuff to have to deal with pesticides and like who knows what that stuff is gonna and I it was this humane mm-hmm. you know angle on it I'd never thought of and I was like well okay all right that's that's good enough for me she's that's less good. selfish than you yeah I guess right <laughs> totally exactly and I just never thought about it and I'm like yep okay we'll keep doing it do you have any thoughts on that there's a lot of reasons I mean organic is the this sort of the north star right now um, despite the challenges around the label and its history that you know. Uh, by and large, buying organic does does ensure a a certain degree of nutrient density in the food, and the science has yet to really bear it out in a clean way. I think it's because our scientific spectacles are limited. You know, when the scientist tends to reduce health to a certain element or a certain type, like omega three fish oil, so you take a bunch of fish pills. You know, well, it's probably better to eat some salmon. You know, so I think the our reductionist scientific mindset has really hamstrung us in knowing what nutrition looks like. And, uh, and then the other side of the equation, which you mentioned, is that, you know, the production practices. Buying organic ensures a certain type of agriculture is being supported, which is really important for labor and justice, both ecologically and socially. Why are you vegan? I'm just vegetarian. So I oh, eat, right, eat right. eggs and dairy. And I first did it because my ex-wife told me I couldn't be an environmentalist and still eat red meat and and then I like I really now I'm like I kind of kind of come a nihilistic view of the environment and I'm like well it's more of a health check on me for yeah. and also because I like animals like I can right now I can kill everything I eat uh without without feeling bad yeah. I, if I hunted I think it would be a lot different or if I hunted once you know I think yeah. I, I think that's a I've sat next to hunters on planes and talked to them and you know, it's like they think we're going to be at odds. And I'm like, no, I'm the same thing you are. You know, like it's, yeah. I think it's great, sustainable, elk, whatever. You have a lot going on in multiple different avenues here. What, what do you, what does your future look like for you, I guess, professionally? I know in my heart that Mad Ag is my life work. It's taken me a long time to get there. And it's even a daily struggle to figure out what projects to manifest first and 
a lot of uncertainty, but committing to this question of how do we live well at land and sea and live in reciprocity with, with nature is uh, really the ultimate goal of my work. And Mad Ag is, is the way that I envision doing that for the rest of my life. I'll never retire. It'll, it'll be until I die. Uh, I know it. That's how my dad worked and his dad worked. And I have that in my, my body too. So if, if Mad Ag is, say, metaphorically like a boat, are you still building the boat and it's going to be cruising in five years or what, what kind of, yeah. or another metaphor? I think the best metaphor I have is that I, I feel like a fledgling bird that's just leaped out of the nest and I'm flapping my wings like crazy, wondering if I'll catch wind. I will, but it might be really close till I hit the ground. <laughs> so it's hard to know. But, you know, there's such resonance in, in the work that I'm doing that, you know, the universe will provide. It's just a matter of meeting the right, meeting the right people and making the right connections and finding those people that believe in the vision for Mad Ag and what we're doing. Uh, you spoke before about coming from a family farming background and then going into academia um, and then getting away from it to do this, somewhat getting away from it to do this. Yeah. How do you think that stint uh, in academia helped you do what you're doing now? It helped me tremendously. Um, it gave me a, the time and space to realize what was important in my life, you know, and I really enjoyed it. My colleagues I'm so close friends with are highly supportive of my transition out and they've seen it for a long time coming they're like ah oh, phil you're doing what your heart you know is calling you to do um and so my time in academia I, I worked with some wonderful mentors who taught me how to think how to write how to tell stories how to how to see the world in an entirely different way i can think very clearly about the invisible gases and nutrients that are moving through this landscape in ways that most people can't and, and i see it as a beautiful thing and it's a very practical thing because all that invisible space is what drives fertility and, and ultimately well-being. Sounds like maybe growing up you learned how to work and then going to school you learned how to think. Yeah. And then yeah. combine them both maybe. Yeah, it's been a total interplay between working and thinking. I still, I wake up almost daily and thinking about my dad's work ethic because when I wake up he's been up for like an hour and a half or two and then he always goes to bed an hour later than me. I mean, it's just insane. He's a physical therapist with a, a mission to heal people. And honestly, I wake up and, and he inspires me. It's wild, you know. I, if he's working, I better be working. What's nice is, is I have no line between work and play. It's all one thing, you know. Life is one. I, I deny categories broadly, whether it's heart and mind or soul and spirit or black and white, good and evil. It's all just big spectrums of the gray. And it's our job to wade through it and that complexity. And so, yeah, work and play is the same thing. I love that, and I hate it myself, too. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually working till 11 p.m. Uh, but, yeah, I have a, yeah. I, there's a line in our film where our, my buddy and I are getting ready to do another training run for to train for our ultra. And I, like, say something like, I think I'm not, some days I'm not really inspired to run, but then I think, my dad probably wasn't that inspired getting up at 5 a.m. for 42 years to go cut meat. So, you know, maybe I'll just do this. So, but yeah, I hear that. I hear that angle for sure. I mean, I, now that I have kids, I, I'm, I, I can often overthink like what I'm trying to give them, you know, it's like, okay, they gotta have this and this and that. And at the end of the day, I think it's just modeling, you know, living a life full of passion from your heart, taking risks, going for it, you know? And, and working with tenacity and and spirit and being a good human citizen is it, you know if you show that to your kids then you know you can be confident they'll carry it forward 
you could still be inside, you know, 40, 50 hours a week on a college campus and um, lecture halls and stuff and offices. Why is it important for you to be outdoors now? Part of the reason I left my research post at CU was because I was spending so many hours in front of the computer, you know, cogitating about data and how to write it and how to, how to, how to publish it. And the real well-being of humans is rooted in the ground. I mean, this is where fertility and well-being is, is happening. So I felt like I was, I was uh, my work, you know, was divorced from the land, you know, in a way that was really starting to work at me on a, on a fundamental and spiritual level. And uh, I would say, having listened to my heart and moving into this space where I'm on the ground working with people and, and embedded in the community, my well-being and happiness has just uh, increased in multi, multiple fold. That the connection to the land and the connection to people doing the good work and the work I'm doing now has just been really exciting and looking forward to carry it forward. Is there sort of satisfaction you get from getting dirty, getting your hands yeah. dirty, digging into stuff? Very few people would, would complain at the end of a long day with dirt under their nails. Even in the places I've worked that are really impoverished, whether it be in Costa Rica or Africa, there's a real joy in manual labor and seeing the outcome of your work um, in such a tangible and practical way. I think people long for that. At the end of the day, just get out and rub your hands in the soil and smell it and taste it. And that can happen in, in all kinds. It's like, it's like a long day of climbing or a long day of fishing or spending, spending the day in your backyard in the garden and, and slowing down. For, for me, it's all of those things combining on the landscape that, that uh, create wellness and health. And that's really the ultimate goal, right? To be healthy and to create a healthy community. Part of the mission of Mad Ag is creating a new agrarian culture. Could you speak on that a little bit? It's sort of a lofty goal. You know, creating a new agrarian culture is, is really thinking about the enormity and the entirety of change that's needed, you know, to bring us in a new, a new world, you know, that, that isn't destructive. Agrarian is an old word, and it feels a little antiquated, but the thing I love about the agrarian past is that everything that was done was done in consideration of the land. So it's in our roots. It's not that far away. And so I think reinventing that word could be really fun. And then the word culture is, is, is really a word that captures the entire movement of why we are here and where we're going. You know, it's a system of norms and customs and values. It's a system of, of belonging and meaning that's very complex but acknowledges fully the interdependence, interconnectedness of everything. You know, buying a burger and, and thinking about the Amazon. You know, those things are intimately connected, but, but not obvious. So for me, culture captures that, uh, the breadth of the problem and solution. What is one yeah. thing everybody could do to kind of push this forward? Stop not thinking where your money is going. You know, every time you spend a dollar, Think about what it means for the world. Don't spend your money blindly. It embodies your value system. It's the way you can vote. So stop spending mindlessly. Be mindful about your money because it it creates the world that either you want or you don't want. I imagine with, with like Mad Ag, you've run into so you know you have almost zero bureaucratic roadblocks. You can't. You're not like ah, oh, I should ask my boss what they think. I should bring this up at the yeah. Wednesday meeting. You yeah. know, you don't have to. No, the, the only obligations I have are the ones I create. And sometimes those can be, they can backfire, but most of the time they're things that I want to nurture and see be successful. So, you know, that's, creating your own path is a lot of struggle, but it's also a ton of fun.
see the farm, photos, and other stories of opting outside, check out rei.com blog. And tune in next time to hear Phil talk with Sarah Yule, a former pro cyclist who's turned to painting the places she cares about the most. This is Take It From Me, the podcast from REI, the co-op that helps you get outside through outdoor gear, classes, and experiences. REI is dedicated to protecting the places we play, and they believe that a life outdoors is a life well lived. And I believe that too. So get outside and find your next adventure.